this morning. So good to see you here. Uh, Romans chapter 5, and we'll begin reading verse number 6 in just a moment. Our young people, 6th grade and down, being dismissed for Children's Church. As you're finding your place in Romans chapter 5, it's always important for us to understand uh, and remember context. You remember in chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul addresses the issue of sin, that all are sinners. Religious men, reprobate men, all are sinners and separated from God. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Revelation, or Romans chapter 4 and 5 deal with the subject of salvation. So sin, chapters 1 through 3, salvation uh, in chapters 4 and 5, and the fact that salvation is not by works, it's not by religion, it's by the grace of God through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Chapters 6, 7, and 8 deal with the subject of sanctification. Once a person has trusted Christ as Savior and become a child of God, they enter into this process of living in victory and becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Chapters 9, 10, and 11, the Apostle Paul answers the question of the status of the nation of Israel. If God has temporarily set aside the nation of Israel uh, for bringing the Gentiles into the church, then what, is he finished with Israel? Does he have a future plan for them? And Paul answers that question, God is not finished with Israel. He has a plan for them still. And then chapters 12 through 16 deal with service. And so a very simple outline. That being in mind, we're in chapter number 5 where Paul is dealing with salvation. And one of the motivating influences in the salvation that all of us who are children of God, one of the motivating influences in our salvation is this wonderful subject of the love of God. And I want us to consider this thought this morning. Notice if you would verse number 6. Romans chapter 5 and verse number 6, and we'll read through verse number 11. Actually, let's go up to verse number 5. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his, what? Love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. And I've titled the message this morning, O Love of God, O Love of God. As we think about the love of God this morning, I'm reminded of something that I heard this past week, that it is incomprehensible, the love of God is. Uh, we heard a man in a concert say this, that in the late 18, early 1900s, and I think it may have been the larger portion of the 1800s, that when songwriters of Christian songs would write on the love of God, they would often use the ocean or big bodies of water or rivers as an analogy or a metaphor for the love of God. 
Songwriters would talk about the, the wideness of God's love compared to the ocean and the depth of God's love like the sea. I think about a song we've recently heard that grace and love like mighty rivers flow incessant from above. And I think about a song that is very familiar to many of us. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. So what a tremendous thought for us to consider. And here's the point I want us to get this morning before we look at some things in this text. And that is this, a right view of the love of God will hold every other area of your life together. A right view of the love of God will hold every other area of your life together. Father, help us as we look into your word this morning. And I pray that you would give me your strength as the human mouthpiece. And yet, Lord, I also want to be a listener sitting under the word of God, even though I'm the preacher today. uh, And I want to hear what the Spirit of God desires to say. I pray that you would take the meditations of this week and the thoughts of this week and the studies of this week and the prayer and the labor of this week and the thinking upon this passage of Scripture. And I pray that you would bring it all together in a way that will help everyone that is here this morning. I pray, Christ, if there's one here this morning that doesn't know you as Savior, that the Spirit of God would draw in that heart, and that before this day is finished, one that is here and not a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, they have doubts about it, I pray that they would be able to end this day with certainty that they're in the family of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God, would you work in hearts? And I pray for all of us as believers that we would be better helped and equipped today to do what Jude said, and that's to keep ourselves in the love of God, to to make sure that our view of the love of God is right so that we can see our lives all the better and all the more held together and effective for you and our impact on others. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Recently, someone who's been to the Grand Canyon a number of times said to me, and I've never been there, but they said to me, Pastor, you can't describe it. You just have to go see it. Or we could say it this way. You can't explain it, but you have to experience it. So defining and describing the love of God is a very difficult thing. You might as well try and describe the scent of a rose or the colors of a sunset as to really be able to fully... How do you describe the infinite? How do you describe the indescribable? And such it is with the love of God. I think about 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 8 and 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 16 where the Bible says this, God is love. If you want to begin to define love, you have to start with God. Now, I want you to know this, and grammatically it's impossible. There's a definite article where the idea is this, the God is love. Not just anything that we think of as God, but the idea of John when he said in 1 John 4, 8 and 16 that God is love, he's saying the God of the Bible is love. Okay. 
And by the way, it's grammatically impossible to switch that around like our society has done or tried to do and say love is God. In other words, whatever a person thinks is love, that's what is ruling in a situation. How many of you have noticed that our society has a fairly lame view of love? Okay. Our society has come to equate love with toleration. We were talking about this last night. The only heresy left in our society is if you're a person who says there actually are heresies. You me say that again? Okay. The only heresy left in our society, in the view of our society, is if you're a person that actually says there are some things that are heresy. Okay. There are some, you know, you say there are things that are wrong, and all of a sudden, by our society's standard, you're unloving. So by our society standard, love is toleration. That anything goes. That God is this doting, benignly smiling, grandfatherly figure up in heaven that just wants us to be happy with whatever we want. Try that in your marriage. Is it love in a marriage if anything goes? There are expectations, aren't there? And so love, by society standard, is tolerating. Uh, it's very tepid. It's weak. And it's theoretical. I always get nervous when I hear someone start to talk about God and they begin their sentence with, I think, I think God is like this. And then they say something that is inconsistent with this. So we have to begin with God. And I want to add this thought to it. God is love. The God of the Bible is love. 1 John 4, 8 and 16. Secondly, He is the source of anything that is truly love. We love Him because He first loved us. And John also said in 1 John that love is of God. Love is sourced in God. In other words, any understanding of love has to begin with God. That being said, I want us to briefly move through Romans chapter number 5 and the first 11 verses. I want you to notice, number one, that God's love is discernible. That is, you can sense it, you can know it. His love is discernible. Notice verse number 5. Hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is, what are the next two words? Shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. The words shed abroad, it's literally the idea of pouring out without any reservation. A liquid that is being just poured out and touching everything, uh, influencing everything. The, the Lord gave us, when we trusted Christ as Savior, gave us the indwelling Spirit of God to live inside of us. And He sheds abroad, He pours out a right understanding in the heart of the believer of the love of God. It's discernible by the witness of the Holy Spirit of God. And may I say it is discernible by this book right here, the Word of God. Many have well said that this is the greatest love letter that's ever been written. You want to know how much God loves you? You want to know what His love is like? You can go to the Word of God. And you have the, if you're a child of God, you have the witness of God's Spirit within. Uh, I occasionally will have... 
a young man come to me. Most of the time it's a young man. I rarely have had a young lady come to me and say this, but most of the time it's a young man, and I think that's the way it should be. A young man will come to me and he'll say, uh, Pastor, would you pray with me about something? I'm like, sure, sure. He said, there's a particular young lady that I'm interested in. You know what my first question is when a guy says that to me? Is the interest returned? He's beginning to feel what he thinks is love towards her. And I'll ask him, I'll say, so do you sense that there's some return in the interest? And it's really funny sometimes. Well, about three weeks ago, I sneezed and she said, God bless you. I think she likes me. (laughs) Or I saw her look at me when we passed in the hallway the other day. You know, it's almost as if she loves me. She loves me not. She loves me. She loves me not. I just want to say I'm glad that God's love is not that way. God's love is discernible. It's shed abroad. It's poured out in our hearts, witnessed by the Spirit of God, reiterated to us, repeated to us over and over, explained and expounded to us in the Word of God so that I do not have to say, does God love me? Does He not love me? Does He love me? I don't have to do that. I was thinking about the day that we dug the well over. I say we. We hired a well digger to do it. We weren't. I wasn't even here. We uh, were coming back from a conference in Pennsylvania. But Mike Daniel was sitting out here, and I think a couple of the guys from the church, when they actually struck water for our church well. 125 gallons a minute is coming out of that well. That's a very fitting amount of water to come out of the well for a Baptist church. Uh, residential wells around two gallons a minute, two to five. Uh, small business wells, 10 gallons a minute, 125 gallons a minute of water coming out of that well. Mike said that when they broke through at 390 feet, I believe it was, water shot 25 feet in the air. They were sitting clear up by the print shop, and he said they nearly got wet sitting by the print shop from where the well is. That's water being shed abroad. And that's just a small illustration of the Spirit of God, what He does in our heart and our lives when it comes to our learning and knowing the love of God. It's discernible. He just spreads it everywhere if we're sensitive to it and looking for it. And I want you to notice, secondly, not only is the love of God discernible, you can know God loves you. But I want you to notice, secondly, the love of God is dependable. Notice, if you would, verse number 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, that is declared righteous by God, I trusted in the work of Christ on the cross, His death in my place. Because of that, God declared me righteous in His sight. Not in my own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Therefore, being justified by faith. Notice this, we have, what's the word? Peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you say we live in a world that's people longing for peace? But we have it with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into his, this grace wherein we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Let me just say for you and for me that know Christ as Savior, as bad as it may be in this life, the best is yet to come. Okay? And we rejoice in that, this hope 
of the glory of God and what is ahead, we can rejoice in what is coming. Verse number three, and not only so, but we, here's how good it is, we glory in, wait a minute, tribulations? We glory in tribulations. Again, all this is in the context of a right view of the love of God. This love of God that we have that has provided salvation by grace through faith so that we can be justified, so that we can have peace, so that we can have access, so that we can rejoice in the hope of the best is yet to come. It also allows us to glory in tribulations. Also, notice this, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. The trials of this life, if I submit to God's working in them, the trials of this life will actually build endurance into my life. But all of it under the umbrella understanding of the fact that God loves me. In fact, Paul will talk more about that in Romans chapter number 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And as I love him, everything that happens in my life, he can work it together for good. And so these tribulations can actually produce or work patience, endurance, and patience experience, and experience hope and hope maketh not ashamed. The idea is we said it in modern vernacular would be this, hope that doesn't disappoint. It doesn't disappoint. And hope that doesn't disappoint, that makes not ashamed. Why? Here it is, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. The devil has his greatest successes when he whispers his lie into your ear that God doesn't love you or that in some trial or difficulty God's love has failed. But in fact, we understand that the love of God is completely dependable to such a degree that even in tribulations and difficulties and trials, with the understanding that He loves me and that He's able to work all things together for my good and His glory, yet this, the dependability of the love of God can help carry me successfully through tribulations and trials. The knowledge of His love this week, Grace and I had a visit with Edie Kincaid, and she was telling us, and I asked her permission to share this. She was telling us that about two weeks before Jimmy went home to be with the Lord, he had fallen. He fell a number of times in those last couple of weeks, but he had fallen in the house, and Edie at the time, some of you may remember this, had broken her arm. And so he has fallen, and she could not help him up. And of course, as you can imagine, there would have been tears, concern, she said when she told us this, Jimmy was sitting on the floor and tears were coming and she couldn't help him back up. There was a little bit of being stunned. But then, and I love this, as he sat there on the floor, Jimmy just started singing, In the dark of the midnight have I oft hid my face while the storm howled above me and there's no hiding place. Mid the crash of the thunder of life's circumstances, precious Lord, hear my cry. Keep me safe till the storm passes by. Till the storm passes over. Till the thunder sounds. What happened? In the midst of trial, the love of God and the faithfulness of God was dependable to a man in difficulty. So as we consider the great love of God, as we try and comprehend a little bit of the incomprehensible, we understand that it is discernible love. We can sense its work through the witness of the Spirit and the Word of God in our lives. It's shed abroad. We don't have to wonder. 
It's dependable love. Even in the trials and the storms of life, it reminds us of the hope that we have and the glory that is coming because God loves us. Thirdly, I want you to notice that the love of God is different from man's love. It's different. Even the best expressions of man's love. Notice what Paul says in verse number 7. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure, the idea of peradventure is possibly with a little thought, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. So Paul refers to human, what we might call the peak or the apex of the expressions of human love. One human out of love for a righteous person or a good person giving their life. There are even hints here of the difficulty that that would be. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure, maybe with a little thought and then jumping in, a good man Some would even dare to die for a good man. And notice it's even talking about a dare. There's a risk involved. And this is being seen as an illustration. Paul uses an illustration of what we might call the best expression of man's love. But notice the object of love is a righteous person by human standard or a good person by human standard. Do you see how Paul begins verse number 8? God's love is an entirely different kind of love. Human love, at its best expression, understands there's a great risk and would be even hesitant to die in the place of or for a righteous or a good person. But God, it's one of the most beautiful statements in all the Bible, but God. Judson mentioned it in the song service, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were, what? It's sinners. Christ died for us. Verse number nine, much more than being now justified by his blood, we should be saved from wrath uh, through him for if when we were, what? Enemies. God's love is different than man's love, both in its origin and in its object. We've already mentioned from 1 John that God is the origin of love. You know, our human love, even its best expressions, is often motivated or moved by lovability or desirability in the object. Last night, Joe and Katie had a game for us to play. And there were like 40-some questions about your wife's favorite this or your husband's favorite this. And one of the questions was, what is your husband's favorite smell? And Grace put down my perfume and supper cooking when he comes home. Her perfume... I love it. I'm telling you, no spouse, man or woman, wants a spouse that smells like a barnyard. Are you with me? Okay. Now, I have a daughter, one of my daughters in particular. I'll not name her to protect the innocent, guilty, whatever. Okay, one of my daughters, 
when I've been out running a chainsaw or working on a construction site and I've sweat and I got the smell of two-cycle engine oil fumes on me and the, all the smell of construction and, and cutting wood and stuff, I'll come in and she'll just be like, I love that smell. <laughs> and she'll want to come up and wrap her arms around her daddy and just bury her nose in my chest and just smell it. I guarantee you, though, there would be a limit to that. Okay. <laughs> Okay, Dad, it's time to go shower now, all right? Our love is often, get this, it is based on the lovability of the object. That's why we sometimes use the term affection. You affect me. The smell of Grace's perfume affects me. Her sweet personality affects me. The smell of supper when I come home affects me. That's man's love. But I want you to understand this. When you and I were yet sinners, when there was nothing lovable about us, God demonstrated his love toward us. Paul uses four different descriptions of man without Christ. Verse number six, for when you were when we were yet without strength. That is without the ability to change the situation. You and I were sinners, and there was nothing in and of ourselves we could do to change the situation. We were yet without strength. And then he talks about Christ dying for the ungodly. It means those who are apart from God, and even in its extremist sense, it's the idea of not even caring. How many of you look around in our world and you see that a lot of people don't even care about God and the reality of God and the existence of God? Okay. A person that lives their life without any great heed to the things of God. And then he refers to those who are sinners. We were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Sinners, it's those that miss the mark and they keep missing the mark. It's almost as if that's nothing else that they can do about it but miss the mark. And then he uses the term enemies, those who were antagonistic by nature. So without strength, ungodly, sinners, and enemies. And yet in that condition, God commended his love to us. There are two times a little three-letter word is used that really we don't want to read past it. Notice verse number six. For when we were, what's the word? Yet without strength. Drop down to uh, verse number 8 again. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet. Uh, the idea is this. <laughs> we'd been given plenty of time. If man had a remedy, we'd been given plenty of time to come up with a remedy. And there was no remedy that man could come up with. Years ago, when I worked on the farm in northeast Missouri, we were plowing or cultivating one spring, and there was a wet spot in the middle of a field. And I thought it looked dry enough on the surface that I could go through it. I was pulling a, driving a great big John Deere 8630 tractor and pulling a 36-foot wide field cultivator behind it. I thought, I can get through this. Looks a little damp. And I started out to it, and that big old tractor, eight wheels, six feet tall, just goes <laughs> out in the middle of a 40-acre field in the mud. My boss was sitting on the uh, outskirts of the field watching because I was pretty new at this, obviously, or I would have gone around it. And I thought the best solution was to just 
ram forward the RPMs and see if we just get enough momentum to go through. And the higher the RPMs, the faster the wheels spun with the cultivator still in the ground, the deeper that tractor went. I was making no progress. In fact, I was making the situation worse through my efforts. And so it is with us. While we were yet sinners, missing the mark and keeping on missing the mark. While we were yet enemies, making matters worse. The idea is this, is if man could have in any way figured it out, he should have had it figured out by now, but he has not gotten it figured out how to get to God without Jesus Christ. Because there is no other way to get to God without Jesus Christ. And the love of God is a different kind of love because it recognizes us where we are in our sinfulness, in our separateness, our being separated from God by our sin, our ugliness, our lostness, and He loves us anyway. And so that leads us to a fourth characteristic of the love of God. Listen, if we're a right view of the love of God will help bring everything else together, hold everything else together in life, and that is this: the love of God's discernible, it's dependable, it's different. And fourthly, it is demonstrated. Paul says in verse number 8, but God commendeth. It's the idea of bringing together both the promise of love and the practice of love. How many have recognized it's easy to say I love you, but not always so easy to show loving actions? And so the word commendeth that Paul uses here is the idea of demonstrating. In other words, I don't just say it, I show it. I don't just promise it, but I prove it. I practice it. The Bible says that God didn't just say he loved, he demonstrated that he loved. The ultimate expression was by sending Christ to die for us. Have you ever thought about what that took? The second person of the Trinity, putting upon himself a robe of human flesh, going through the full human experience in what we call the incarnation, so that, get this, so that blood could be shed, so that the price for sin could be paid. The Bible says that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. He took upon himself willingly a robe of human flesh, knowing the pain of the cross that would come. It was a demonstration of the love of God. He died for us. Again, and I mentioned this several weeks ago, it is not just dying on or for the benefit of another, it's dying in the place of another. I can do something for your benefit without much cost to me. But Jesus' death in our place, he died in our place, a death that was rightfully ours. We deserved it. And so it is love that is demonstrated, planned, thousands of years planned. You think about the holiday, Valentine's Day, and have you guys ever forgotten about it? I'm reminded of the story of the little boy who came home with his dad one day and the husband handed a set of flowers, a bouquet of flowers to the wife and the wife was just going on and on. It was her birthday and she's like, oh, sweetheart, thank you so much for these flowers. And the little boy who had been with his daddy said, yeah, mommy, he got those from where the dead people are. 
Somebody had forgotten to go by the florist and remembered, oh, birthday. And with ill preparation. Now, I hope none of you guys have ever done that before. I will tell you, there have been times when my expressions of love have been last minute. Okay? But you know, the best expressions of love is when it's planned. And let me tell you something. The love that God showed when he sent Jesus to the cross was the most planned demonstration of love in the history of humanity. I want you to notice, fifthly, as we look at the love of God and seek to grasp the incomprehensible, that his love is also a delivering love. And there is so much of an application that can be made here. I want you to get this. Anybody who uses the love of God as an excuse for sin in their life does not understand the love of God. A right understanding of the love of God creates a growing disdain for sin. Because I understand that it was that sin that hung Jesus on the cross. And by the way, Paul will develop this more as he moves through the book of Romans. Look, if you would, at chapter number 6 and verse number 1. What shall we say then to these things? He's been teaching on the grace of God. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Understood answer. No. God forbid. No. That's not the point of the love of God. That's not the point of the grace of God. That yet is sadly so much of the common prevalent understanding of society that God is this doting grandfather who kind of benignly smiles down and wants everybody to be happy. Let me tell you this. God does want you to be happy, but not separate from holy. Okay. Within the boundaries of God's happiness, or holiness, I want you to understand this. Within the boundaries, just go read, go read Matthew chapter number 5. The Beatitudes... The promises of blessedness within the boundaries of God's provision. I think it's great that last night, and I talked to several people about this, as God's people, we could get together and have a great time and didn't have to bring any of the world in. Wouldn't trade it for anything. And that was just a little taste of it. But all this to say, I want you to notice fifthly that God's love is a delivering love. Delivers from the sinful condition. There are three main ideas that Paul brings out in this passage of Scripture. Verse number 8, when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This speaks of the doctrine of or the action, the work of God in redemption. Lost on the slave market of sin, and God, through the precious blood of Jesus Christ, paid the ransom price to purchase me out of the slave market of sin, to set me free and to make me unto him a special possession. Redemption. Then Paul also in this chapter talks about justification. Verse number one, therefore being justified by faith. Notice verse number nine, much more than being justified. So redemption... God's love in this delivering aspect redeems me, it justifies me. And that is this, I am by nature, you are by nature, all of us are hell-deserving sinners. Okay, I know it's not popular to say, but we're on the foundation of God's word here. We're hell-deserving sinners, 
yet sinners, yet ungodly. Nothing we could do to remedy our own situation of ourselves. But when we placed our faith and trust in the finished work of Christ, the redeeming work of Christ on the cross, I was redeemed. Bought out of the slave market of sin, set free from the bondage of sin, made God's special and eternal possession. But then the Bible also says another action of God took place. It's called justification. Where God, if I can say it this way, at the judgment bar, for you lawyers, at the judgment bar of the universe, declared me righteous and therefore worthy of access into heaven. By faith that's done. It's God's work, not my work. It's not my righteousness, it's Jesus' righteousness. He took my sin and he gave me his righteousness so that when God looks at me, he says, you can come in. And so God's love is a delivering love through the work of redemption, through the work of justification. But it gets even better. Three times in this passage, Paul speaks of our being reconciled to God. The delivering love of God accomplishes the work of redemption through Christ's work on the cross. It accomplishes the work of justification. And then Paul mentions this word reconciliation. It is to take Two parties that were enemies or at odds and bring them together in harmony and peace. Now get this, God didn't move except through sending Jesus Christ. In other words, there's no compromise to the holiness of God. This is amazing, okay? As bad as we were in all of our greed and our sin and our vengeance and our bitterness and our selfishness, get this, when we trusted Christ as Savior, He placed Christ's righteousness upon us. He took our sin upon Himself because He had paid for it on the cross. And now, my having been separate from God, now through the work of Christ, I am brought into a right relationship with God. Paul uses the term peace. Peace is the idea of oneness, harmony. I'm reconciled to God. And all because of the work of God's love. So his love is discernible. It's dependable. It's different than man's love. It's demonstrated preeminently through the work of the cross. It's a delivering love. But I want you to notice finally. Notice verse 11, and then I'll tell you the final point. And not only so, after having been reconciled in this much more that God's been doing for us, and not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. I want you to notice a final characteristic of the love of God. Understanding that a right view of the love of God will help tie everything else in our lives together. I want you to notice this final characteristic. The love of God is delightful. I I joke about this, and I have to remind myself. My kids reminded me about this the other day. I'm going to be very transparent with you. We were going home the other night, and literally about 500 feet from our turn onto Rippy Road, Brother David, it was late at night, and some law enforcement officers were doing a license check. And I know we have one here this morning, and I've gotten right with God over it, so you can forgive me. I could have cared less about stopping at a license check at 10.30 at night. And I understand their purposes in doing so. I just pulled my license out, held it out like this, 
The officer looked at it and said, thank you, you may go. I pulled it back in and we drove away. My kids said, Dad, you didn't say anything to that officer. You didn't smile. You didn't say thank you. You didn't say good evening. You didn't say anything. And so here's what I tease them down. I'm like, you know, Christians should not be walking around looking like they're waiting on a gallbladder attack to happen. But as we grasp more and more the depths of God's love for us, it cannot help but produce delight. I I want you to notice this, and I'm I'm watching the time. We're just about finished, okay? I want you to notice verse number 9. Can you say the first three words of verse number 9 with me? Much more than being now justified by his blood. A drop down to verse number 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. What are the next two words? <laughs> I love Paul. It's as if Paul is saying, it just gets better and better. You think redemption's good much more than he justified you. He declared you to be righteous at the judgment bar of the universe. You are righteous in your position, so that you are worthy of access into heaven. So beyond redeemed, you didn't, just didn't get redeemed that is purchased and taken out of the slave market as sin. You got justified. Much more than reconciled. And it just keeps piling on and piling on the lavish display of the love of God. It is liberating. Also, Paul uses, I think, twice in this passage, the statement, not only so, Not just this, but this too. You understand, very practically, Christian, this life is the worst. If you know Christ is saved, this life's the worst you'll ever have it. I don't care how bad it is. And yet, get this, you still, as a born-again child of God, even living in this life, have it amazingly well. And yet, the best is yet to come. Fooey on your best life now. The best is yet to come. And, and here's the thing, and I've used this illustration before too. God has this wonderful setup where I can actually, if I can say it this way, borrow against my future assured reality. I can borrow against it so that I can have joy today, even as bad as it may be. Okay, because that future is so sure. And so his love is delightful. Now, now do you see why songwriters look to the ocean and its broadness, and to the sea and its depths, and to the rivers and their power to try to give us some kind of understanding of the love that God has? A love that is discernible, dependable, and the difficulties different from even the best demonstrations of man's love. It's a love that's demonstrated, not just spoken, but shown, not just promised, but practiced and performed. It's a delivering love that frees us from the bondage of sin and all the false, cheap, counterfeit forms of so-called love that's actually lust and greed in this world. It's a love that is delightful. Last night at the Sweetheart Banquet. I want you to go to 2 Corinthians and then I'm going to close. 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. 
in verse number 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse number 14. The Apostle Paul says this, For the love of Christ, what's the next word? Constraineth us. The love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, we determine, that if one, speaking of Christ, died for all, then we're all dead. We needed his death because we were all dead. His death is a substitute for us. And that he died for all, get this, that they which live, those who trust him and are raised to new spiritual life, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. The love of Christ constrains us. Most of the time when we've heard that word described, it's the idea of a a positive, a good pressure that motivates us, that moves us forward. But there's another aspect of the word that I believe is perfectly legitimate here. The word constraineth is the idea of, of the love of Christ holds all the parts together. And that's where I get the proposition of the message. A right view of the love of God will tie everything else in life together. It'll make everything else understandable to a degree, bearable. All your needs all your wants, all your trials, it all is tied together when I live in the reality and the right view of the love of God for me. And the fruit of that is joy, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse number 11. We've got this joy that is the outgrowth of a right view of the fact that he loves me. And he will always love me. The ladies that did the decorating last night had a, somebody joked and said it was a TP without a canvas on it. Some sticks leaned up out here and had some flowers all strung over it, some seats where all of us couples could get our picture taken. And toward the end of the evening, uh, I think Gracie and I were the last ones, and so somebody called and said, come get your picture taken before we take it down. So we sat down, and I put my arm around her, and she had her hand on my knee, and we were just having fun. People were joking around, and, and uh, we were snuggled up close to each other. And I got to looking at the pictures last night. We got home, and I sent one to my mother-in-law. And uh, she texted back. She didn't say anything about our love for each other. But she said this. She said, your faces radiate joy and happiness. You know why? Because of love. Love produces joy. Now, that's a funny contrast to our picture last year before we were married. We faked and did an American Gothic picture at the sweetheart banquet and the balloon we had last year. We sat there, looked like this. Let me just say this in all seriousness. When a person has a right view of the love of God, they're not going to go through life looking like this. There's going to be a joy because that's the fruit of a right view of God's love in our lives. Let me just say this to you and we'll close. We can have the musicians going and come and get ready. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as Savior and you're not sure about where you're spending eternity, I want you to know God loves you. He commended, he demonstrated his love toward you that even when you're in your, you are in your current condition, he sent Christ 2,000 years ago to pay for your sin.
Jesus loves you. And then, believer, I don't know where you are. You might be in the middle of a discouraging situation, a trial. You may be battling with bitterness. Skeletons in the closet, something haunting from the past. Maybe a sin that you're in the middle of and God's working on your heart about it. Let me tell you, a wonderful antidote is to just get a right view of the love of God. When you realize how much God loves you, it becomes a wonderful antidote, a repellent to sin in our lives. Father, thank you for your word today. As we conclude this service here in just a moment, I pray that You'd be working in each of our hearts. If there's one here that doesn't know Christ as Savior, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. And Lord, for believers, I pray that they would just keep themselves, as Jude said, keep themselves in the love of God. The piano's going to begin to play, our heads bowed and our eyes closed. I wonder if there's anybody here today, just between you and me and the Lord, nobody else looking around, anybody today would say, Pastor, I'm not sure about my relationship with Jesus Christ. If I were to die right now, I'm not sure where I would spend eternity. And i got questions about that or doubts about that. Would you pray for me? Anybody at all? I'm not going to embarrass you. I just want to see your hand and pray for you. Anybody at all? Will not tarry long. Believers, let me challenge you before we sing here. I don't know how God's talked to your heart today, but would you purpose this morning to cultivate, to recalibrate a right view of the love of God because it constrains, it brings everything else together. It holds everything together in our lives. God help us. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray that we do business with you in these final moments. Join me in standing if you would. Judson.